Well, good morning. I'm Sam, and uh, we're going to be going through the last couple sermons of James, which has been a uh, interesting and uh, uh, difficult book uh, to go through, but it's been uh, powerful for me personally, so I've enjoyed it. We're going to be in the end of James chapter 5, verse 13, and go through uh, just a couple of those, and then uh, next series, so we'll go one more week in James, where I'll just kind of wrap it up at the end, and then um, actually uh, we'll have... Uh, an awesome sermon right in between uh, our series. The next series will be a series called Sacred Assembly, and that's really about the church. There's been a lot of confusion in the, um, in the world and in Christendom together of what the church is, what the purpose of the church is. We want to address some of that um, and talk what, see what Scripture says and defines the church as, including um, why we preach sermons, why we take communion and what's going on there and the the leadership of the eldership, what that's all about. That'll be a really short series. And then following that, we'll probably go into a series of a book in the Bible that you may not even know exists called Habakkuk. And uh, we will, it's a minor prophet, and uh, typically you don't see a lot of sermons on these obscure named books, but uh, we thought we'd hit one uh, that would be um, really enjoyable. So that will be what's upcoming. Right now we're in James chapter 5, and we'll get right to work in verse 13. And uh, I'll read it to you. If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. You're free to take one. And we think we have some in the, in the library area uh, or bookstore area as well. So 5, verse 13, and we'll go through 18. It says this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone... Oh, I'm not going there. We're starting at Psalm 18. I was getting excited. All right. James is... um, Last week, I should say, Mark, one of our elders, preached on James, and he talked about taking oaths and vows. And at the heart of all taking oaths and vows and things of that nature, and really the heart of Mark's sermon was the idea of being real, being true, stopping lying, if you will, or seeking and living for the approval of men, or going beyond confessing and talking about your faith and not actually living it. It's doing what you say you believe. And whenever I consider that idea of being real, you know, that's kind of a, a hackneyed or overused term, be real or be real in your faith, I typically go back to the idea of a childlike faith when Jesus talked about needing faith like a child. And I, am, um, I love the idea of, of faith like a child. I see the faith of my own children. I remember my own faith as a child and how different it was as an adult today and just how I even see things. Because when, when children have faith, they are often very simple in their thinking. They're very raw. They're very bold. They, they accept very, you know, Simple explanations and anything is really possible. I remember, this is a weird story, but I remember um, we had a kind of a, a gentleman that lived with us for a time when I was growing up. And he was a friend of my parents and he was a single guy and he wanted to be married. And when my parents shared with me, I was probably four or five, he wanted to be married. I just looked at him and said, well, let's just pray about it. Like, that's just what you do. And so I did. And a month later... He found the wife that he wanted to, or the woman he wanted to marry. He became her wife, and I became the ring bearer. It was a silly story that Sam started to pray for a wife, and his name was Dick, and Dick found a wife. I was like, okay, very simple, though. My kids do that even now. You get hurt, and they'll be coming to me crying. <laughs> They're like, oh, are you okay? And they put some, you know, antiseptic or whatever on it. Like, can you just pray for it? And they just, that's their mentality. It's like, sure, it's bleeding everywhere, but I'll pray for it. It's just so simple. 
And then when, when they want to accomplish something, they're like, you know, let's just pray about it. They are more apt to do that, probably because of my wife and her example, better than mine. Just like, let's pray. It's not something we do. It's, it's just so, like, a, no duh at that age. But yet, when life hits us as adults, or we have experiences that are difficult, it seems like, and it may be different for you, but it seems like we become much less childlike in that sense. Things are less possible. We, we lack courage to do crazy things and to take risks and to ask God for, for big answers to prayer, to trust God, and we lose that childlike faith. But this entire sermon, and I say sermon, I mean James' sermon, because many scholars believe that it was written as a sermon. This entire letter that James writes here is about that bare minimum raw, this is what genuine faith is. And what James says should make us a little bit uncomfortable. And in the same way that a child kind of calls it like it is, I don't know if you've ever had that experience with your own children in public, saying things that you just don't say in public. My children did that. I did that as a youngster. I remember calling out bald people, fat people, whatever it was. Kids just tell it like it is. They don't think about what the possible consequences are. So if they're standing in line at the grocery store and there's someone that smells next to them, they're going to turn and not whisper and say, Mommy, this guy stinks. They're just going to say it. And you know what? It's probably true. The guy probably reeks to high heaven, but no one dares say that, though it is true. And I wonder if James is like that a little bit. Now, I uh, was an English teacher in my previous life, and I used to always study a guy, uh, one of the romantics, who had kind of a screwed-up religious mentality, but he wrote some good stuff. His name was Ralph Waldo Emerson. You may have heard of him. If you didn't, don't feel bad. You're not illiterate. It's just, an, you know, just go with it. He wrote an essay called Self-Reliance, and it's one of the most famous American essays. Don't feel bad if you didn't know that. And if you read it, it's really long and kind of difficult, but there's little nuggets of truth in it that are phenomenal. And one of the nuggets I want to share with you is about kids. And here's what he wrote. It's just, it's awesome. He says, a boy is in the parlor what the pit is in the playhouse. And before I read the rest, let me explain that. You may not know what a pit is. You probably know what a mosh pit is, but, or an orchestra pit. But that little area in front of the stage was always called the pit in the playhouse. And it used to be not where you, you know, had instruments or tried to hurt yourself hitting other kids, but it was the place where you would stand. It was the cheap seats. Now we have the cheap seats up the nosebleed. Now it used to be the cheap seats down here. And as the actors performed, they would call out exactly what they thought of the actors or the play. So if the actors were acting, they'd be like, you suck, and they would just yell it out right there for everyone to hear. And really only the actors heard it because everyone's behind them, but that was what the playhouse or the pit in the playhouse was. And so he says, a boy, a little boy, is just like that pit when he's in the parlor or in like a, a place of, of social you know, interaction. And he says this, a boy is in the parlor with the pit is in the playhouse, independent, irresponsible, looking out from his corner on such people and facts as pass by. He, this little boy, tries and sentences them on their merits in the swift summary ways of boys as good, bad, interesting, silly, eloquent, troublesome. Or fat, ugly, smelly, you know, whatever you want to list. He numbers himself never about consequences or about interests. He gives an independent and genuine verdict. That's different than men. We often live for the approval of men. We don't say things so scared of what men might think. We are wondering about 15 different consequences. Could possibly, even though I might speak something truthfully, I've got to think about how that person is going to feel if I say this. And so typically we don't say it. And I, James is like this boy, I think. I think James has a childlike faith in that sense where he, if we were to say some of the things that he writes in this letter, it would feel very rude in public, although I'm publicly declaring them every week. It would feel very rude, but privately we know he's right. Privately we read this and we go, yeah, you are right on and he says things like, have joy in your trials. We just don't say that to people. You know, I've got cancer. I'm struggling in my marriage. Have joy in the middle of that. 
you serious? You don't say that. He says stuff like, if you don't have works, your faith is dead. It's good as dead. Uh, you know, that might be kind of harsh, James, although probably true. We don't say those things publicly. He says, the wisdom. You think you have wisdom, but your wisdom's from Satan. Says this in a book. That's a little harsh. Or your tongue is so evil, it is set on fire by the fires of hell. Yeah, that's a little too bold for me. But I think as we read this, James is trying to declare, look, I'm not going to be subtle about it. This is what a Christian is. And if you aren't this, you are not a Christian. No matter what you say. And publicly we go, you don't say that. Privately we go, you're dead on. And I know it and I feel it. And as I've studied this book, I've been convicted many times. And he's going to say the same thing today. Where he says, look, this is one of the standard practices of a Christian. And that is we pray. We pray. And I preached on prayer in the beginning because James starts and ends with prayer. Believers pray. He says it seven times in this small section of verses. And like Paul, who often said, pray without ceasing. Pray on all occasions. We go, yeah, but then we don't do it. Really, we don't do it. He talks about prayer. He says in verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So, Instead of prayer, and I'll just speak from my own personal experience, because I know that there are probably many more righteous people than me in here, and that is, typically, many of us, instead of praying as our first response, we have a temptation to grumble, a temptation to, to kind of grit our teeth when tough things happen and just get through it the best that we can. Our default mode isn't to pray. Now, in truth, I think... And don't correct me if I'm wrong because you just will sound bad. But I think we don't pray, and I've said this before, because we actually do not believe that it does anything. If we, in the privacy of your own little closet somewhere, talking to God, I don't think we pray very often because we really don't believe that it matters. That God doesn't hear us, that we pray in the right formula, whatever it is, the reason you might use to justify it, we don't pray. Because we don't believe it works. And of course, many of us do pray. We pray at meals. We pray at bedtime. We pray when our brides ask us to pray. And we pray when things are, you know, really difficult. We want something in particular. But James isn't talking about praying just periodically. James is basically saying, for the believer here, and as he lays out different contexts, prayer is supposed to be as natural as eating and sleeping. Prayer is just something we do. Prayer is, in many ways, a part of our identity because it's an expression of a dependence upon God, period. Now, he says specifically in the very beginning here, we are to pray at two times, when we suffer and when we prosper. And suffering has a very broad application. He uh, used the, the concept of trials in the beginning of the book, and trials can mean all kinds of things. We can have various kinds of trials. He likes to reference, James does, different prophets and even if you survey the prophets of the Old Testament, you'll find that they have very uh, a diverse type of experiences that everyone would describe as trials. You have Jeremiah, whom nobody listens to, and he weeps, writes lamentations over you know, basically the destruction that, that God is, is promising. You have uh, Daniel, who is pulled out of his hometown and, and taken away into Babylon, and he experiences all kinds of things, the lion's den and all these difficult things because he refuses to worship false gods. But he loves God, he obeys God, he prophesies for God, and yet he, he suffers terrible things. You have Ezekiel, whose wife dies, which is certainly a trial for any husband. You have Hosea, whose marriage breaks apart and falls apart. His wife ends up being a prostitute, and he continues to pursue after her, just as God, in his example, pursues after us. So all these prophets had terrible, various kinds of trials and suffering. So suffering, or some translations say trouble, can be physical or mental. It can be some kind of personal, financial, spiritual, relational, religious. It can be all kinds of trouble. 
any of those difficult circumstances where it's the hardest to have joy. And for some of us, that takes a little irritation, and for others, it takes incredible devastation. But it's that time when your default mode isn't, I think I'll have joy now. Now, solution to this, his counsel to this, is not to take a pill, not to to go and see a counselor, not that those are bad things, those can often help. It's not to read a book. He says the first response is to pray. He's just very plain. Let him pray. And I wonder how often we forget. And this is what I think is the nature of it. How often we forget that this world is not all there is. Where Peter talks about the idea of a lion. Satan as a lion. Going about prowling, looking for someone to devour. Or Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 that you're in the middle of a war and Satan is firing missiles at you constantly. How quickly we forget that we're in a spiritual battle, that there's a war going on with spiritual consequences and spiritual effects and even physical effects from that, and yet our first mode is to just figure it out, grit our teeth, not to pray in suffering. I think the core of it is a lack of eternal perspective. It's a lack, I think, of a hope in the gospel that says Jesus is the one who has defeated death and sin and brokenness. And the cross is our victory, not anything else in this world. But he also says to pray when we're cheerful, which I think may be more difficult for some of us. It's almost easier to pray when we're suffering because it's clear we need help. But when things are going good, when things are joyful and cheerful, how quick are we to thank God? I think a lot of us, the cheerfulness, the joy of life, whatever that might be, success financially, relationally, your marriage is dynamite, your kids don't hate your guts because they're through puberty or before it, whatever it happens to be, the reality is, it often can make us lazy and complacent and not very grateful towards God, who is the source of all good. We are constantly struggling, I believe, to live actively in the presence of God. And I do believe Satan will give you whatever you want if it will lead you away from that presence and away from that active faith. So trials of poverty often lead us, when we don't have whatever it is we need, will often lead us to salvation or hope in something other than God. And trials of prosperity will do the same. So in one sense, we're working hard to get out of our trial and suffering and we'll look for stuff that will satisfy that, whether it be money, sex, relationship, whatever it is. And when we have prosperity, instead of being grateful to God, we pat ourselves on the back. I'm so glad I made such wise decisions or I didn't make poor decisions or that I was lucky and this worked out for me. He says in those times we should sing and specifically sing psalms, sing praises. He says we need to sing praises to God which are in many ways prayers to music. If you read the psalms and you read what these, these heartfelt prayers most of them are joyful expressions of glory to God. But I wonder, even as we think about singing songs in our cheerfulness, because we come, we gather on Sunday morning here, we gather as the people of God, the people who say, I love Jesus, I believe he is my Savior, we gather as the people empowered as a fellowship of the Holy Spirit whose presence is here, and then we go through the routine of songs. Where we're supposed to be cheerful, we're supposed to be expressing joy and dependence, and I wonder how many we go through the routine, because I think it's a lot of us, of just praying. You're just kind of going along with the words as a routine, because that's what we do. We sing songs. And how much that translates as a mirror of what your prayer life looks like. Not only in suffering are we, if we're praying, do we pray through routines and pray for freedom from temptation, but we're not really praying. And when we come and sing, we're just kind of opening our mouths and letting noise out without any intention of what we're actually saying. We're expressing joy that God has given us our next breath or a great number of other things that he has. I think many of us forget the joy of the gospel. 
that as we gather on Sunday morning, we don't say we have it all together. We simply say all the brokenness, all the bad decisions that I've made, all those things that are holding me down that I feel guilty about, I don't have to feel shame and guilt about. That should bring us joy. I would come in and live freely because I'm forgiven, not perfect, but forgiven of those imperfections. And that Jesus has brought me back into the family by the work he's done because my work sucks. That should bring us joy and freedom. But I think we get stuck in the routine. And we're not really cheerful and joyful praising. We're just praising because that's what you do. We always sing three songs before the service. We don't make consciously say that, but that's maybe what happens. Prayer when we're suffering, prayer when we rejoice. And then he talks about prayer when you're sick. And he says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So he gives this third situation about praying in sickness. And it can mean, and probably does mean in, in part, physical sickness, but it can also mean uh, a spiritual or even a mental weakness. And that can be, you know, just even a troubled conscience, or it can be severe depression, or it can be overwhelmed with anxiety about decisions or whatever. And it's, it's not just those who find themselves with a specific illness or disease, but even those who just feel defeated because of whatever trial you happen to be experiencing. So it can be all of those things. But asking a question, if I were to stand up and say, is anyone among you sick? I liken that to when I'm in a prayer group and or you're in any kind of community group or whatever and you say, does anyone have any prayer requests? And all I hear is the crickets. As everyone kind of looks around at each other, and then someone says something out of obligation like, well, my Aunt Matilda uh, is having surgery on her big toe um, this week, and that's where, where it goes to. Okay, we're going to pray for Aunt Matilda. Uh, is anyone among you sick? We are so hesitant to talk about weakness. We'll even talk about the big things. I've got this disease got this fungus growing over here, whatever happens to be, but we're very slow to say, I've been depressed for a long time. I am starting to doubt. I am I'm suffering because I don't know where God is in the midst of this. We don't dare expose that because that exposes our heart a little bit, and I'm keeping that closed because I don't want anyone to know that I'm doubting, that I'm hurting, that I'm weak. We would never reveal that. It's not our default mode. But asking a question like that, I think many of us fail to admit that we need help. Possibly we're blind to the fact that we need help. Or we know we need help, and we're just faking the funk really well. We don't want anyone to know it. So we come in, how's your day? My week was fantastic. Praise Jesus. And you're like, are you serious? You seriously feel like that? Everything's going right? Oh, man, my life is just so together. And maybe that's true, but I think sometimes we're really good at faking it. We're really good at faking it. And James says, ask for help. Ask for help. And the beauty of this passage I really love is that there's an implied set of relationships or a nature of relationship within the body, the church that he's writing to. There's implied relationship between people between friends who would actually pray for one another, but even more so, those who would be willing to be transparent and say, yeah, I'm weak, and knowing that the people in that community are not going to reject that person, knowing that they can say that it's safe to say I'm struggling, and no one goes, glad that's not my life, okay? Or that they're not just going to be condemned, how dare you struggle with lust? <laughs> I'm so glad I never do. Wow. There's a beauty in that. But there's even more of a beauty in the fact that there's an implication that the elders, first of all, that there are elders, and secondly, that these elders are ready to respond. We have prayer cards, which I think one has been filled out in the three years that we've been in a church. We have a prayer email. I think it's been emailed twice. 
we have a prayer group that we just restarted again, which about six people show up typically out of a church of a couple hundred. People are unwilling to ask for help. We've had one or two couples. Well, one was demon-possessed, so that didn't really count. But one, two couples that have asked for prayer from the elders. That just doesn't happen anymore. James tells us to, we read this and, and we anoint with oil. And back in the day when, in, in ancient times, oil was used as a, as a kind of a medicine on a real practical level. Olive oil and similar oils were used for, for medicinal purposes. But the disciples in Mark 6.13, it's the only other place that it, it's used, says that they cast out many demons and anointed oil with many who were sick and healed them. And I, I, I think that what that verse means, like what they actually did, it's hard to know, but it's clear that they did something. And back in, I think, in Jesus' day, and maybe even more today, or, or a little bit today, people tended to over-spiritualize illness a little bit. I mean, I went to a charismatic school and hung out with hyper-charismatic people, and I, there's nothing wrong with charismatic people, but there are some what there's a problem with, just as there's a problem with non-charismatic people. They're just extreme and every sickness and illness and sniffle is a demon. And it's just like, you know, you blow your nose and demons are coming out. It's weird stuff. And we tend to over-spiritualize illness. But I think the problem today is not that. The problem today is that we de-spiritualize illness altogether. And so that we don't even think about asking for spiritual help and prayer to attack a spiritual thing. Because that's just foreign to us. And anointing with oil seems just weird. Strange. Um, I mean, what was the last time you actually saw that happen? And maybe you've had that experience in your church before. I've had it once in my entire life as part of the church, never heard about it. I remember reading this passage uh, when I was thinking about studying James and preaching James and going, that's awesome. And so countercultural today. Countercultural to the world who would say that you even pray about stuff. But counterculture, even to church culture, says, that's a little freaky. That's a little hyper. They used to do that stuff. We don't do that stuff anymore. We're beyond that. The whole idea of retro faith, we kind of move beyond, okay, well, now that we've progressed into maturity, we no longer squirt people with oil and pray for them. We've got medicines and stuff like that. And, and don't get me wrong, God has blessed our world with incredible medical advances and inventions that I think all goodness for healing comes from God. I believe that. But I think there's something beautiful in here that we dismiss as old school, as passe, as archaic. They did that back in the New Testament. We don't do that kind of stuff today. And what I think happens, that that's just the first step or maybe the second or third in developing a faith that is no longer spiritual, is very rational, very just, you know, pragmatic. And church becomes less of a spiritual experience and a corporate experience than this idea that there's a fellowship and the presence of God happening, more of just a club and we have our activities. There's a transition in what's happened. I had one experience once where we, we prayed over a man. His name was Don Shadow. It was, I was an elder in a previous church, and here's my default mode, okay? This is, I'll be real honest with you. I got a call. It was when I was first becoming an elder. I wasn't really sure what the responsibilities were, what you did. They thought I could teach, and I mean, I could teach, and I, I, I led people, and so they thought, you must be qualified, and so I became an elder, and their process wasn't really sophisticated, and they didn't really told me what to expect, and I got a call saying we're going to be, go pray as elders. I'm like, pray? And they go, yeah, James chapter 5. I'm like, James chapter 5? Okay. What's that say, you know? We're going to go pray and anoint with oil. Come on. Really? That was my, like, people still do that kind of stuff? So we went to this man's house. The man had stomach cancer. He had uh, tumors. His stomach was full of tumors. Uh, so much for his appetite, he couldn't eat, all kinds of things. And uh, we got there, and I really know, I'm the young buck of the group. You know, everyone else is like, you know, 80 and up or something. Well, not really, but they were older than me. And so we're there, and they're like, yeah, we're going to anoint this guy. Well, he starts explaining what they're doing. 
He says there's nothing magical about the oil, but it is an expression of dependence upon God and dependence upon Him for healing. Whether He heals this man or not, we are going to cry out to Him and pray. And I'm like, what? They're really going to do this. And so we all laid hands on Him, and He anointed Him with oil. And it was the most powerful prayer time I have ever had. It's one of those times where you're praying and you feel those tingles go up the back of your neck and you're like, there's something happening here. I don't know what, but it's just, it's powerful. And I remember praying stuff. I don't even remember what I prayed, but it probably sounded really good because I'm like, man, this is like, it was awesome. But it was an experience that was totally foreign to me and seemed archaic and like, we don't really do this. It's like, maybe we're supposed to be doing this more. Well, the elders are called. And that man, we prayed for him. He lived for two more years. He had a month to live when we prayed for him. Went to the doctor and half his tumors were gone. Okay. This isn't like, come up, throw your wheelchair to the side. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. We just prayed. We just, what, I mean, at what point do we start reading this and go, maybe we should do that? That's simple of faith. That crazy of faith. We're actually depending upon God and doing what his own brother, who calls Jesus the Lord, says we should do as he leads the biggest church in the New Testament. It was beautiful. There's power in prayer. There's power in prayer. And he says the prayer of faith, which I believe he's speaking of, the heart behind the prayer, not the perfect wording of the prayer. Have you ever heard a child pray? That's beautiful. We just kind of listen to them and they're saying just kind of crazy things sometimes, but it's beautiful because the sad thing, I think, and the beauty of it is that in our minds, we're discounting everything they're saying a lot of ways. But the prayer, it's not the words, it's the heart. It's not the oil, it's the heart. It's the dependence upon God. And I don't believe that everyone is going to be healed just because you have enough faith. I think that's a terrible heresy preached by false teachers, and it's created a lot of pain for a lot of people, as if God owes us something, and that's why he'll heal us when we have enough faith and we're entitled to it. Paul couldn't get perfect healing. He asked for it. God is in charge God is the one who heals. And our goal is not the healing. That is our desire. But that's not our goal. As we pray, our goal is to know Jesus. It's to know Him more. And by the fact of His resurrection, we know that in the end, even if He doesn't heal us now, all healing and sickness will be healed in eternity. That's where our hope is. Not here. Not here. And then he goes in the last context of prayer. So we pray when we're suffering, which is, sounds really private. I think it can be public with, with people, but prayer when we're cheerful. And then he starts getting into prayer of sickness, calling for people to be healed if they're sick and the elders to come. And then he talks about unconfessed sin. He says if he has committed sins, this guy who's called for healing, or prayer, I'm sorry, he will be forgiven. And therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. You may be healed. So he shifts gears, but he does have that word therefore in there where he makes a connection between the sickness and the sin or the forgiveness as well. And it's not that I think we need to examine our hearts every time we have a sniffle or an upset stomach and start going, hmm, do I got sin in my life somewhere? I'm not sure that's really wise as you're blowing your nose and you're like, dude, you must be lusting. You know, I don't think that's it. But the reality is, at some level, the practice of sin, at some level, harboring bitterness, at some level, the rebelliousness that maybe no one knows about has an impact on us physically and can cause sickness. Not every time, but it has an impact. Paul references it in 1 Corinthians 11 as he's writing to the church that has all kinds of issues at the time. And one of the issues is how they approach the Lord's Supper. And he says they approach it sinfully. 
And he says something in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, verse 28, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, and if you read the context, you'll see that they're making all kinds of uh, simple choices as they approach it and how they treat one another. It says, If they approach it without discerning the body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that, verse 30, is why, as he drinks judgment on himself and does this sinfully, Many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So we make some level of connection to it, and I wonder if we've just been completely dismissive of that at some level. And again, I'm not saying all sicknesses are created by sin, but some are. Psalm 32, King David, if you know the story of King David, he had an adulterous affair with a woman who was not his bride, obviously, and she was married to a soldier in his army. She gets pregnant. He calls him back so that he, he says, why don't you take a rest and go sleep with your wife so he can try and cover up his sin. He refuses to because he's a godly guy. He is an honorable man, and he knows his soldiers are still fighting. He says, no, I'm going to sleep at the door of the, of the kingdom and forget it. I'm not going to go out there and fight. I'm sorry, I'm not going to go be with my wife and be comfort when they're out there fighting still. He refuses, refuses, refuses. He's like, oh, that's fine. He sends him back out, puts him on the front lines, and gets him killed to cover up his sin. And until God's prophet came and said, let me tell you about a guy. He didn't confess that sin. And in Psalm 32, he talks about the time period when he didn't confess that sin. And he says this, Psalm 32 and verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, David writing, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, namely didn't confess, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the summer of the heat. He suffered physically because of his unconfessed sin. How dismissive we are of that. James says again, the word therefore, in order to deal with this idea of suffering physically, we need to confess our sins to one another. And confession is not what the Catholics have created, although in the spirit they're, they're trying to accomplish what is taught here. It's not going into some closet and, and kissing beads and declaring Hail Marys so that your sins can be forgiven. But quite simply, confession is admitting your sin. Owning up to your sin. And it's the hardest thing to do. It is the hardest thing to do. Even privately. But even publicly more so with one another. But we are called to speak out the same thing that God and everyone else probably sees in us is the reality of the sin in our lives and not to pretend like it's not there. We're not to hide behind the bush like Adam did. My son, God bless him, my oldest son, he has a tendency whenever he screws up to, he, he likes hoods. We don't like him wearing the hoods, but he likes hoods and when he, when he screws up, he takes the hood and goes on like this or a blanket and walks around like this. Now, we've gone through confession and forgiveness and all that stuff, but he still hides in shame. And every time I see him, I always go, Hey, Adam, knock it off. You've been forgiven. Adam, I already know. It's, like, it's almost an ongoing joke now. Oh, he's Adam again. Okay? That's not what we're supposed to reside is in shame like that. It's been forgiven, and there's cleansing in confession. Adam hid behind the bush when he hadn't confessed his sin. And he didn't confess until God came and said, what did you do? There is cleansing in confession. I like how New Testament scholar Curtis, I'm going to say his name probably wrong, Vaughn, said it this way. Confession is the vomit of the soul. Oh, that's good. That's a t-shirt, you know. Confession is the vomit of the soul, the puke of the soul. Why? Because when you throw up, and I'm not a big throw up person. I've been on a 10-year, well, no, my 10-year streak ended when I 
made myself throw up bad salad. But I'm on like a seven-year one now, okay? So I don't puke a lot. But the reason why you throw up is to expunge and get rid of the poison, whatever it happens to be. It's a good thing. It wants you, your body is saying, this is bad. This is not supposed to be in here. This is worthless, not good for you. And so you're gone. That's what confession is for our soul. It's the vomit of the soul. It's beautiful and disgusting at the same time. Now, Psalm 32, if you keep reading the next couple of verses, David says what happened when he confessed. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I acknowledged my sin. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, quote, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. It's actually verbal. Many of us, like, confessions, like, yeah, I said I was sorry. It's different verbalizing it, especially for others to hear. Where you confess, just as he did, my transgressions to the Lord. And he says, and you forgave the iniquity of of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly, sounds just like James, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Because the confession comes and forgiveness is there. It's not like, I forgive me. He's like, I'll think about it. It's paid for. It's covered. There's no need to sit in guilt and brokenness and shame which rots because you haven't confessed and it made it open and public. But then he says, David's like, yeah, I can I confess to you, Lord. And we go, I can do that. I can sit in my closet and confess to God. But James says, confess to one another. Oh, whoa. That's a little too far of a step for me. I think James is talking about here, not just to God, not just to priests and to elders, but it's intended for those who are truly believers of the gospel and in relationships with others who truly believe the gospel. 1 John 1 says there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who admit their sins and those who don't. That's it. And those who don't are liars. He continues, though, Because most of us, to be honest, don't admit our sins, especially not to other people. We might have that one person that we're willing to confess to, but typically we don't because that level of transparency is just too much for us. We are so fearful of rejection, and we think that I can maintain this relationship with this person if they don't know this, or this, or this. We kid ourselves into believing that that actually is a relationship. It's not. It's fake. First John, John also goes in the next verses, and here's what he says. It's one of the most powerful passages in Scripture about relationships and transparency with one another. He says this, 1 John 1, 5. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness or sin, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. Verse 7, though. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. See, in the light, we have this sense that, and it's true, that there is healing there. But the problem is, our unwillingness to walk in the light is the fact that It doesn't, yes, it takes away our sins spiritually, but it doesn't remove them practically. So when we walk into the light, everyone sees everything. Everyone sees who we are. Everyone sees our sins. And we're exposing ourselves to a little bit of shame, tempted to go there. But that's the only place, John says, where we can have true relationships is if I can walk in the light and you can walk in the light and we can see each other's dirt, knowing that it is dirt, admitting and confessing that it is dirt, and trusting that God is going to clean us both. That's genuine gospel relationship. We don't get together, confess our sins, and then affirm one another. 
I'm so glad you're a sinner, and me too. Let's just continue in our sin. God be praised. There are communities like that. They get together. It's like basically those accountability groups. Maybe you had one of those, especially guys. You get together. Yeah, here's all the sins I did. Me too. All right, good. See you later. And you feel like good because it is cleansing to say that, but you never grow because you basically come out in the light for a second. I'm a sinner. And that's it. Versus walking together and being willing to call one another out and being willing to encourage one another when you need it. That's walking the light, and it's very hard to do because every now and then you're listening to those lies like this person is going to reject me if I say this. And if they do, they're not believing the gospel. It doesn't mean they never say anything hard to you, but even in the hardness that they're speaking, they rebuke out of love. Healing doesn't come in silence. And that's what James says is the whole point. In confession comes healing. And then he closes with a story of Elijah, who's just an awesome, awesome story. I mean, this is getting me excited. I don't know what will. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. He uses Elijah. I mean, I know who Elijah is. He was a prophet of God. You can read about him in 1 Kings. But this whole section is about how, how powerfully prayerful this man was. And he's known kind of in culturally in Jewish um, history as a, the man of prayer, as your example of prayer. And the reason why is because Elijah was, was prophet during the, the reign of a really terrible king named Ahab. Not the captain of the Peckwood who was hunting Moby Dick. And if you don't know that, you should read it. It's an excellent book. But Ahab was a guy who didn't lead. He was a pansified leader. And as a result, his bride, who was an evil, you know what, she led her husband into sin. Her name was Jezebel. Maybe you've heard of her evil, evil woman. She ruled her husband in many ways and she led him into sin and particularly into false worship of false gods, one named Baal and I believe others. But God punished the kingdom of Israel because of his leadership and he caused a drought. And prophet Elijah, or Elijah the prophet, was the one at the time of this reign. And he had the wonderful privilege of being the only prophet with about 450-ish prophets of this false god. So after three and plus years of drought, he challenged their prophets to a little contest to declare who really is God. And so he met them on the top of a mountain, and Mount Carmel, and they built a sacrifice. He said, let's have a little contest here. And it's the most hilarious, powerful Awesome story. If you read it, it's 1 Kings between 16 and 18. I think it might be in 17, somewhere in there. And he builds this, this sacrifice, right? And they put a, uh, some kind of meat on the, on the top, and they're like, all right. And Elijah says, what I want you to do is you go ahead and call to your gods, do what you do, your freaky stuff, and we'll see if you can consume the fire or consume the sacrifice with fire. And so they're like, all right, so all 450 of them start doing their dancing and all kinds of stuff. They're like, eh, I don't know what they did, but they probably did something, you know. And so they're going around in circles and nothing's happening. And they do it for hours and hours and hours and hours and nothing's happening. So Elijah comes up. It's hilarious. He's like, so what's wrong, fellas? Maybe you're not doing it loud enough. Maybe your God can't hear you. And they're like, eh. So they start cutting themselves and, like, bleeding all over. They're like, ah, it's just kind of freaky weird, right, which typically happens in cultish type of stuff. And they're going crazy, and Elijah's, at one point he says, well, maybe, maybe your God's like going to the bathroom or something. Seriously. It's in the Bible. It's a beautiful story. It's like, maybe he's going potty, and you know, he can't hear you. He's a little busy. And they're like, oh. so they keep doing it. Finds like, that's enough. Let me come in. So he moves him out of the way. He takes buckets of water and pours it on it just to make it a little more dramatic, right? And he's like, Lord, consume. Boom. Fire. Done. And it's clear that we're talking about one true God. And everyone can see the prophets of Baal, nothing. This one prophet, one true God, God of Israel, you win. And he kills all the other prophets. And that's a powerful prayer. But they still need rain. And so he tells Ahab, you better hurry home before the rains get you. It's like, what are you talking about? And in first, I'm sorry, yeah, first Kings... Here's what happens. Chapter 18, verse 42. 
This is shortly after the event. He said, Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. You picture that. Top of this mountain, bowed with his face to the ground, and he said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. Now a servant went up and he looked. If I see the sea off the mountain a little bit. And he runs back. And he said, there's nothing. And he said, go again. He did this seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man. Man's hand is rising from the sea. I mean, you see a picture? I don't know how long it took. But he's bowed down. Praying. And he tells the servant to go look. And he comes back. Nothing yet. All right, go again. Seven times. And it's this picture of prayer that we're talking about. And I know many of us, and James is assuming this, are going to the world of it. Well, that's Elijah. That's super Christian. I'm not super Christian. And he says. Elijah in verse 17 was a man with a nature like ours. He's just a man. There was nothing special about him. He was not perfect in any way. He didn't have superpowers. In fact, shortly after that experience in Mount Carmel and the rain came, Ahab went back in his chariot, went into the house, and guess who's there to meet him? Good old Jehu. What happened? Well, Elijah killed 450 of your prophets, and uh, the rain's coming. And he's like, he did what? And Elijah, the man of God, who killed all the prophets, who prayed and fire came down from heaven, who prayed in rain, hears that Jezebel is angry. And he goes and hides because he's scared. That's a man like me. That's a man that in one sense, can go have these spiritual highs and then a week later, like, oh my God, Lord, I doubt everything. That's real. I can pray like that because it doesn't expect perfection. It doesn't expect fire from the sky every day. It allows me to be a little fearful every now and then, to doubt a little bit. He was a man just like us. Not perfect. Not a spiritual giant. Most of the time, he remembered that there was a giant in his soul. That the Bible says, greater is he that is in me that is in the world. Typically, we get scared of the world when we forget that. Scared of suffering, scared of cancer, scared of some broken marriage, scared of not having a job because we actually think the world is more powerful than it is. And we lose sight of where we are and who we are. Last couple things. He also prayed and he prayed again. He was a normal Joe, and I wonder how many times, unlike Elijah, we just don't pray long enough. We just don't pray long enough. I mean, this guy is on top of a mountain praying seven times for, his, for the time it takes, for seven times for a servant to go back and forth. I mean, just imagine that. Go look. No, it's nothing. Okay, go look again. There's still nothing, man. All right, go look again. Uh, yeah, there's nothing. I mean, this is a guy that in one prayer pulled down fire from heaven. How? Third, fourth check. He's got to be going, come on. I've been praying. Lord, what's the deal? I get an insta prayer here, and I'm like seven times running back and forth to the sea? What is going on here? How quick are we to do that, though? We determine how many times in our mind is going to be enough. Well, I prayed for three days straight. guess that wasn't enough, or God answered your prayer. One or the other. But he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. And I think that After the sixth time, what I see is not a guy who's going through the routines, but a guy who's desperate. Why are we that desperate? 
Why aren't we that dependent upon God that it's like, you know what, God, I know that you are the only one that can do this. And I'm going to pray and pray and pray. And next thing you know, your relationship with God is amazing because you have been praying and talking to him and yet he hasn't answered it. But you're way closer to him. And he's like, ah, accomplished what I wanted. Why aren't we that desperate? It's as if we don't need him, don't want him. But the last thing I think is, is most powerful is that he prayed fervently. He prayed fervently, James says. Literally, the Greek says he prayed in prayer. In other words, he didn't just pray routinely. He actually prayed. He didn't bow his head because he thought that was what God wanted him to do. He bowed his head like Moses taking off his shoes before God in the fiery bush because he knew he was before the presence of God. Elijah wasn't going through routine. And oftentimes we pray and we're just talking. We're just talking. It's very hard for us to even be silent before God. It's difficult for me. I'll lay there sometimes. Yeah, and that's another thing. Well, we'll get to that. I'll pray there sometimes, right? You're praying in like a couple minutes. You're like, I don't know what to say. Yeah, I guess I'm done. First, you're just sitting there, listening, waiting. For God to move, maybe? And how many of you guys pray, this has been an ongoing thing for me, how many of you pray laying down in your bed? I hate that. I find myself doing it more often than not. No, less often now. Because it just feels bad. It's like you fluff your pillow, you know. Maybe turn your electric blanket on, warm yourself up, lay down nicely. Ah. Okay, Lord, I'm ready now. And you pray. So you're comfortable. When's the last time you got down on your knees and prayed? Well, that's archaic. You don't do that anymore. I didn't say you had to do it in front of anybody. But there's a huge difference between making an intentional decision in the privacy of your own home somewhere, by yourself, all alone, I am going to bow before my God and pray to him today. I'm going to do something with intention, unlike maybe I've done ever before. There's a difference. I try to pray with my kids on their knees by their bedside, but that even itself can become routine. Why are you doing it? Have you ever prayed on your face? Even outside of suffering, maybe out of joy, out of cheerfulness? out of sickness, out of confession. He prayed. I imagine he probably wept. In First Timothy, it talks about men praying with their hands lifted high. Man, it takes like pulling teeth to get someone to raise their hand in this church. Seriously. Not because that's what you should do as an expression of our soul, of how we feel. But every time... You might have a desire to maybe lift your hand a little bit. Right? You know what you're thinking? What's Timmy going to think of me raising my hand? What are these people behind me thinking? I don't do that because that distracts me. Then close your stinking eyes. Okay? Just wondering. Does it move you into a physical response to God? Not that it should. I don't want a bunch of people laughing in the spirit and crying. I'm not talking about that. But does it do anything? On your knees, lifting hands, whatever. So I want to pray like Elijah. I want to have a church of people who pray like Elijah. People who have a childlike faith and ask God for huge things. Actually believing that He will come through. I want us and pray that we'll do this in community. That's what these road groups are about. Because we can't do a lot on Sunday. You can hear the Word of God. You can have some relationship. But sitting down and confessing with one another, that takes intentional community. And that's what these community groups are about. Not that it's going to be a huge confession fest, but it is that place where you can do that, where you can expose your heart. You can invite people into your heart to let them know who you are and to find out who they are. And pray for them. Pray for healing. Confess to one another. Where else does that happen? We don't do community groups because we have to have them. We don't. We do it to fulfill many things that the Bible calls us to do to be transparent with one another. And sometimes it takes 
systems, if you will, to allow that to happen. But let me ask you a real quick question as we close. Who do you have to confess to? Who do you have to make that emergency call to? Who do you have to call and say, just pray with me? Will you pray with me? That's the kind of relationships that we want because most people that come to our church looking for a church, nine times out of ten, their biggest complaint is whether they're married with kids, just newly married, single, is that they're lonely. That's number one when you get them to the point of admitting that. They're lonely and they want friendships. And the purpose is for this kind of stuff. Prayer to one another. Encouragement to one another. Relationships in which we can confess our sins, pray, where we can walk together in the light, fully exposed as children who don't have it all figured out, but trusting God to do the things that only He can do. Period. I pray that you will do more than just come and leave, but you'll take the next step and maybe enter community with us. And it's hard. It doesn't happen overnight. I understand that. Let's pray. Father God, we give you glory and we come before you praying, Lord. I just ask very simply, God, that you will move us to be a people of prayer more powerful than we've been in the past. That when we suffer, we will pray. When we experience prosperity and joy, we will pray. When we are sick, Lord, that our people will call upon the shepherds if need be, whether that be in their community group or the elders of the church, to pray with them. And that, Father, you will help us to confess our sins to one another that we might be healed. I ask and plead that you will make us a people of prayer, a people who are dependent upon you and recognize there's more to your body than just an activity or a Sunday morning. It's a relationship together as a family where we pray with one another and encourage one another. May you be glorified by how we do that, Lord. In your son's name, amen. Please stand and respond with us. And as Sam was pointing out, pay attention to the words that we're singing. We try to pick words that um, are songs with words that help us to focus on what's important about the God that we serve.